HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch beef is 100% grass-fed, free-range, and always antibiotic-free. Our beef will be available in Whole Foods Market's 44 California locations from San Luis Obispo to San Diego throughout the summer beginning June 1st. You can also order our 100% grass-fed beef online as part of a partnership with Larder Meat Company. Visit HearstRanch.com. That's H-E-A-R-S-T Ranch. Welcome to Jupiter's Almanac. I'm Matthew Rayford, the great-great-great-grandson of Jupiter Gilliard, a former slave who bought the land I now farm in Georgia nearly 150 years ago. Through the years, my ancestors have passed on some essential and hard-earned wisdom about growing and producing the food we eat. It's my great honor to share that inheritance and to invite other farmers from Georgia and around the country to share their tips with you. It's an opportunity for us to slow down and to connect and to plug in. And the farm does that in a way that lets you connect and appreciate the life that exists and nurture and cultivate that and then extend that to the relationships to the people who are in that house with you and your community. So if you are just starting out, reconnecting with the land, or a seasoned farmer, join the conversation. And to be honest with you, it was like, would Warren come out and say, hey, I want to be a farmer? Probably not. I, I consider myself a city kid. You know, when we initially got a horse, you know, I have that New York City mindset a horse i'm thinking thoroughbred horse aqueduct racetrack (laughs) belmont racetrack those type of things you know and 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 slowly but surely i'm starting to understand a lot more i do remember early on like you know the first month or two of dating how we would daydream about starting a farm together and it's kind of like hold on let's like pump the brakes and get to know each other first and then talk about that you know So what got me into chickens? Um, I always joke and say that a chicken saved my life, Um, and it very much so did. I'm interested in Black liberation that's ecological and that's not contingent upon these systems giving us anything. There's also something that's beyond this that I want and that I seek for for our people, and that's intimacy with the land and that's reliability. And so for us, it's also this idea of 
connecting people back to the land and connecting our um, folks back to their ancestry. So what does it mean to organically, sustainably farm in our current economy and time? Please subscribe to Jupiter's Almanac wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome walk expert and award-winning author, Grace Young. In this episode, we're going to talk to Grace about COVID's impact on Chinese restaurants, why we need to save Chinatowns. And we'll hear Grace's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. We send our best to everyone coping with the pandemic, especially those in the hospitality industry, riding its ups and downs. And we send our thanks to all the essential workers keeping us going. Join us for the presentation of the 2020 Julia Child Award to Danielle Nirenberg at the 6th Annual Smithsonian Food History Gala from Home on October 15, 2020. That's in just one week. Register now at foodhistoryweekend.si.edu. It's free and virtual, so there's no reason to miss out. Check out our interview with Danielle in episode 94. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia may be known for all things French, but she was a big fan of Chinese food. She enjoyed going to Chinese restaurants and was a frequent visitor to San Francisco's famed Chinatown, among many others. She even once wrote, I would be perfectly happy with only Chinese food either French or Chinese, could live with only Chinese. Perhaps her time in Southeast Asia cemented the appreciation, but regardless, you'd be hard-pressed to find any older culinary tradition or more reverence for ingredients than in China. So despite her association with Boston, Julia was in fact a Californian, and Chinese food history in America goes all the way back to the gold rush and to Chinese immigration to San Francisco in the mid-18th century. Sorry, mid-19th century. That's how deep Chinese food traditions run in America. Chinese restaurants themselves became more widespread in the 1960s, coinciding with an overall restaurant boom, and guess who? Julia Child as the French chef. Someone whose personal story is very much intertwined with this history is Grace Young, who the New York Times dubbed the stir-fry guru. Well-known for her expertise in wok cooking, Grace recently created an oral history project with videographer Dan Ahn entitled Coronavirus Chinatown Stories to document how Manhattan's Chinatown has been impacted by COVID-19. A multi-award winning cookbook author, food writer, 
and even filmmaker, Grace's Walk Therapist satire won a James Beard Digital Award and garnered a Webby nomination. She won a Beard Award for a cookbook, Stir Frying to the Sky's Edge, and has won five IACP awards, including having The Breath of a Walk named an IACP culinary classic in 2019. Grace even lectures on walk culture and has become an iron walk preservation activist. Before writing about Chinese cooking, Grace was the test kitchen director and director of food photography at Time Life Books. Her work has appeared in many leading publications like the Washington Post, Food 52, and Eating Well. And she was also a contributing editor at Savoy Magazine. We know her at the foundation as a fellow member of the Smithsonian National Museum of American History's Kitchen Cabinet, a group which advises the museum on the American food landscape. In fact, her family's walk, which dates to 1949, will soon join the museum's culinary collection. Grace joins us today to talk about the impact of the pandemic on America's Chinatowns and Chinese restaurants. Welcome to the podcast, Grace. Thank you so much, Todd. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Our pleasure. We're glad you could join us. So we're going to kind of talk about some heavy stuff today. And I wanted you to start with kind of just taking us back what seems like ages, but not that long ago, about kind of what happened in New York and in other Chinatowns when when COVID hit. Yes. Uh, So uh, as early as January, as soon as there was news that COVID um, was uh, a part of our lives, uh, there was an immediate shunning of Chinatown in New York, San Francisco, Chinese restaurants, Chinese markets and stores, Asian American stores, all across the United States. And in New York, I was observing it uh, at close close hand. I'm sorry. Here in New York, I was observing uh, close at hand what was happening in our Chinatown in Manhattan. Um, mm. And uh, the locals knew to immediately shelter in place. By February 2nd, there was the ban on China, uh, Chinese tourists. So uh, that dried up a very important um, group that was uh, pumping money into Chinatown's economy, Chinese mm. tourists. And by mm. mid-March, all travel was stopped coming into the United States. So essentially, Chinatown, which was a huge tourist destination, lost 67 million tourists. Wow. That's a huge amount. And um, located in downtown Manhattan, uh, there are normally 300,000 workers in lower Mm. Manhattan gone. Right next to Chinatown are the court systems. So normally during the day, people from the courts, jury duty people would come into Chinatown to eat, shop, gone. So by mid-March, April, it was a ghost town. All across the United States, Chinese restaurants, uh, Asian American stores, markets saw an immediate loss of business anywhere from 20 to 80%. But even in January, some businesses already dropped 80%. So February, March, April, um, and in in March, Mayor de Blasio ordered the closing of all restaurants throughout the city, and all we were allowed was takeout. And mm. even that was not sustainable because what was happening was I actually know someone who had a Chinese restaurant in Midtown that had an excellent takeout business, but um, Chinese workers were afraid to come into the city. 
They were afraid to come in because they were afraid they would catch the coronavirus on the subway or at work. And most importantly, they were afraid of hate crimes against them, of riding the subway and someone trying to assault them. So um, so even when business was good, they couldn't keep the business open because workers would not come in. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I think you you gave a good explanation and portrait of just how many sort of economic and geopolitical forces had an immediate impact. And, and how much would you say the, the xenophobic reaction? And I was also curious if you feel like that subsided or it still kind of is what it was. Um, So I don't know, I can't break down the percentage of what was governing all of this, but certainly this tremendous drop in tourism, tremendous drop in just having office workers uh, around Chinatowns or Chinese businesses, and the xenophobia, I think all were equal um, components in changing, changing the economic landscape for Chinatown. And so we're now kind of six months on from the onset of, you know, the the serious changes that you just outlined. And what would you say is the resulting impact in in New York and, and, and what, what sort of is still at stake? So I would say that all businesses are still hanging by a thread. And there was a statistic uh, that I read in April that said, 233,000 Asian American businesses, small businesses, have closed throughout the country. There was another that uh, 60 percent of Chinese restaurants had ceased their credit card and debit card transactions, um, implying that they had closed permanently throughout the country. And mm. um, yesterday in Manhattan's Chinatown, a very very um, old bakery called Lung Moon that has been around, I think, over 50 years, closed. We've lost legacy businesses like that. There's a restaurant called WK, 69 years in Manhattan, closed. A wonderful produce market, uh, Lean Me, closed after 45 years. So uh, the situation is really horrible right now. And Um, 98% of the businesses in Manhattan's Chinatown are mom and pop. So with the closing of these stores and restaurants, it really paves the way for gentrification. And Mm. with gentrification, it really means um, the end of food equity in the community. And what's so unique about Chinatown, and I think it's why people love it, is it's real. Right. Mm -hmm. And people of different ethnicities, socioeconomic backgrounds, not just the Chinese love to shop and dine in Chinatown because you can buy high quality, nutritious, affordable food. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when you lose uh, a community like Chinatown, it means the end of food equity. And, And this is the last outpost in Manhattan. Just a few blocks away, once you leave Chinatown, the prices for produce, meat, everything is much higher. So this is, this is a very, very sobering moment for Chinatown. And San Francisco's Chinatown is also hanging by a thread. KQED, the um, 
PBS station of San Francisco did a piece a few weeks ago that said that the moratorium on evictions for commercial leases in San Francisco was about to be lifted. Mm. And they said specifically that would spell the end of Chinatown and Japantown. Because mm. all the businesses, once they have, uh, the moratorium is lifted, would be expected to pay their rents that they haven't paid for the last couple of months, maybe from January, maybe from March, I don't know. And if you can't pay it, then the landlord has the right to evict. So it's a pretty, pretty, pretty dire moment. And I thought before we talk about how people can help and what you think people should do and keep in mind, I thought it's helpful to go back a little bit and have some more context. And you started to lay out the part about um, food equity, but I think there there's even more than that in terms of the fabric of American history and food in America. And so what's in your view, and I know you're quite passionate about this, about what we're at risk of losing and like what will be lost and what is the 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 part of of American heritage that that could be lost through through the destruction of of Chinatowns and Chinese restaurants. So apparently at one time there were 50 Chinatowns in the country. And now basically we are down to um so there are so many I, I should backtrack. There are so many Chinese communities now and markets. For example, I grew up in San Francisco. And when I was a child, the only place to shop and eat Chinese food really was Chinatown. But mm. now there is uh, the Richmond District, Chinatown on Clement Street is, you know, this little bustling area with lots of restaurants and shops and people who li live in the peninsula um, don't need to come into San Francisco because there are plenty of Chinese restaurants and Ranch 89 or whatever that whatever that supermarket is called, Ranch 88. I think it's Ranch 88. Um, okay. and Oakland has a, a, a Chinatown. Um, but I'm just thinking of the historic Chinatowns. It's really just New York and San Francisco is left. Los Angeles yeah. no longer has a real Chinatown. It's just like a few blocks. Washington, yeah. D.C. used to have a huge Chinatown. Uh, right now, the Chinese arches right under them, it's either a CVS or a McDonald's. And Chinatown in Washington, D.C. is more or less one or two blocks. Philadelphia, mm. the same. So what I'm saying is there are certainly Chinatowns all across the country. Within Manhattan, we have like eight or nine Chinatowns. There's a Chinatown in Flushing, Sunset Park. All around the boroughs, there are different places now that you can shop. But um, these historic Chinatowns like San Francisco and Manhattan's Chinatown carry so much um, connection to our past, right? Mm -hmm. This is where the Chinese set down their, their roots when they first came. And uh, it's just horrifying to think that we could lose Chinatown. And what will happen? You know, uh, a few years ago, there was a GNC that suddenly appeared in Manhattan's Chinatown. I have never seen a Chinese person shopping inside this store. It looks like an alien being sitting on this corner. <laughs> you know, the architecture doesn't even fit. They knocked down the old building and they built this modern structure and nobody needs to go in there and buy protein powder, right? When you're yeah. in Chinatown, uh, this is not what you go to Chinatown for. Um, 
You mentioned in your introduction that many of the Chinese restaurants uh, started in the 1960s. That was really the heyday of uh, Chinese restaurants um, really prospering in this country and the popularity. And as recently as last year, there were already reports that um, we were losing Chinese restaurants in this country because many of those people that started those restaurants their children have been raised in this country and they're well-educated and they don't want to return to working in the family business. They mm, are, yeah, they are professionals, doctors, lawyers, you know, designers, and they would much rather uh, pursue their uh, interests than to return to working the grueling hours of a Chinese restaurant. Um, but on top of that, back in 2009, Jennifer A. Lee, do you know this author? Yeah, wrote a yeah, wonderful she's a book. Very good writer. Yeah. yeah, she wrote this wonderful book called Fortune Cookie Chronicles, where she said that in America we think of apple pie as being the quintessential American food. But she asked the question, when was the last time you ate apple pie? And when was the last time you had Chinese food? So she was basically saying Chinese food is more American than apple pie. And in the book, she also said that there are more Chinese restaurants in this country than all the McDonald's, Burger Kings, and Wendy's combined. But um, I think now, after COVID, that that stat could not possibly be true. No, that's fascinating too, and and that you know certainly there's a whole tradition of of not every but Jewish Americans spending Christmas eating Chinese food, and exactly. if that's not a cultural mashup of what it means to be American, <laughs> I don't know what is. I wanted to ask you though. I think you made a good point, and it's kind of an interesting one that made me connect some dots. That the irony of the pre-COVID risk to Chinese restaurants with the generational prosperity, if you will, reflects that many people who ran Chinese restaurants did it as a means to an end. It was a result of language barriers and discrimination, possibly education of immigrants rather than their fondest desire was to run a restaurant. And there's that kind of incongruity between the necessity or the fallback of doing it. This happened actually not having nothing to do with Chinese to my grandparents. Well, they had financial difficulty and the main option they had open to them that they could action was opening a restaurant. So is that really a bad thing or how do you reconcile those kind of, you know, it was partly based on limited options versus when you have all the options, why would you do that? I mean, it's absolutely true. Um, in my last book, Stir Frying to the Sky's Edge, I interviewed a number of um, people who grew up with their family in the Chinese restaurant business. And they spoke about the fact that their parents or grandparents were extremely well educated, but could not get jobs. So the only option to, for them was to run a Chinese restaurant. Xiaoqing Cho um, grew up, I believe, in Missouri. I, I'm Michigan. Oh, God, I can't believe I can't remember it. Oh, but her no. parents. You sound like quite parents, the New Yorker, one of those states in the middle. Yeah, yeah, I'm so sorry. It's an M <laughs> state. Uh, but her parents were um, graduates of uh, the um, 
School of Journalism, um, a really famous um, school of journalism, and they could not get jobs as journalists. So they, they had never run a restaurant. They had no experience. And he ended up in the kitchen and the mom was the hostess. So uh, this is a very common story. And these, these jobs um, are seven days a week. 12 to 14 hour days, it's grueling. It is not an easy way to eke out a living. Um, and when I talked to you about what was happening in Chinatown, um, so many of these businesses in March after Mayor de Blasio closed down regular dining and only allowed takeout. Um, the restaurants were working harder than ever and owners were doing all the different jobs from prepping to cooking, to packing up the food, taking the phone calls for deliveries because workers weren't coming in. So they had reduced staffs um, and still they were only making 20% of what they had made before COVID hit. So um, yeah, it's, and as we all know, Chinese food is labor intensive food. It's, a lot of chopping and slicing and preparation. And it's not just, you know, putting together a hamburger and grilling it, right? Slapping it on and just pan frying the burger and putting it between a bun. It's all the chopping, slicing, mincing. It's, you know, wrapping of a dumpling. Just think about it, right? But I was going to ask you, do you think is this in some ways as sad as it might be a natural evolution of things of, if you will, societal and immigrant progress? Or do you feel that there's been this sort of important, um, as challenging as it might have been at certain times, like cultural exchange that actually happened between Chinese immigrants and and white Americans or other Americans who ate in Chinese restaurants. And that's why, in your view, it's so vital to try to sustain it. Um, I'm, I'm not quite following your question. I mean, are you, are you asking whether or not it's just natural that Chinese restaurants die out? Well, I, I guess I'm trying to get more at the heart of what you feel in particular, because I know you're very passionate about this. If if we go back to what we're talking about even pre-COVID, that right. generationally, the next generation of Chinese Americans were n- not interested in continuing and running or opening these restaurants. If we're losing them, is what are we losing? What is it that you see as so important to sustain culturally? Well, I think uh, Chinese restaurants have become an important part of the community. And um, it's, I think it's one thing if a family decides that, you know, mom and pop are now in their 70s or 80s or 60s and no longer want to uh, continue the restaurant and the children don't want to take on that job. But right now, what's happening in Chinatown to see these businesses closing is just so absolutely heartbreaking because everyone wants to keep the business open. And for every business that closes, all those workers have no other jobs out there. There is um, no, no net for them. And how are they going to make a living? Uh, another thing that was happening when I said to you that there were workers that were afraid to come in because they were afraid that they were catching coronavirus. 
so many of the workers in Manhattan's Chinatown, and I know San Francisco's Chinatown, live in SROs, the single room occupancy. So mm-hmm. that means that there are immigrants who um, rent a room from a landlord, quote, uh, who, uh, who has rented an apartment, a one-bedroom apartment, and then divided that apartment into enough living space for five people, let's say, to live in. And so it's partitioned off. And these landlords were saying to their tenants that if you go to work, um, you will not be allowed to come back. So some of these workers would have loved to come in to work because they need the money, but they can't risk, they couldn't risk doing it and losing their one place to live. Um, so I, I just fear for everybody right now. The situation is so horrible. And as each restaurant, each store, each business closes, there are no other options for them. There is no other restaurant that they could go to to work. And what's going to happen already? I believe a third of the people living in Manhattan's Chinatown uh, live um, below the poverty line, and yet everyone, there, no one's asking for a handout. Everyone is willing to put in a seven-day work week and put in fourteen-hour days. A uh, fourteen-hour days, yeah. There, there is yeah. a fruit vendor on Mulberry and Canal Street. She works from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. when the vending, you know, when, when the quote shop is open. But she's there at 6 a.m. to set up. And they're standing on concrete the entire day. There is, you know, in the summer, it's the hottest, most humid weather um, and cold, windy days in the fall and winter um, when it's damp and freezing outside. I don't know how they do it. Um, yeah, and the and the fruit is just impeccable, the highest quality and the lowest prices, the most amazing selection of fruit in the entire city. So, um, yeah, all of these people that are, are working are working tirelessly, and it's backbreaking work. Well, I think that's a great um, explanation of the ripple effect from what's at stake. So, so thank you for taking us through that. We're going to take a break and we'll be back with more from Grace Young about the pandemic's serious impact on Chinese restaurants in America. Stay with us. I'm Brian Kenny, a board member at HRN and Director of Collections and Archives for Hearst Western Properties. Hearst Ranch beef is 100% grass-fed, free-range, and always antibiotic-free. I recently recorded an episode of HRN on Tour with the division manager for Hearst Ranch, Roland Camacho. We talked about what makes Hearst Ranch unique. The business that you're running right now can run like this, come what may. Still cattle. The seasons are going to be the seasons. They're, you know, the, the type of cattle that we raise is going to be the same. The grasses are going to be the same. We're not. It's not going to be a bunch of track homes. It's going to be right. a ranch, and it's not going to be a bunch of track homes because Hearst Corporation, uh, under the leadership of Stephen Hearst, put a conservation. Mm-hmm. So it will be a ranch forever. Forever may not get much bigger, right? But it, it probably will p- uh, persist for a long time. In the modern era of business, where the focus, and the emphasis is entirely on growth mm-hmm. all the time. 
How do you deal with that? We don't follow those norms. I mean, that same thought process you're talking about, it, it's still another train of thought along those same lines is that you need to continue to diversify every time you reach that that point of diminishing returns you need to diversify your product to keep that growth curve going up and what we're doing is the exact opposite right we're going more simple we're going back to the way things were the way that cattle were intended to be raised to and we're keeping the ground static so success for us is to be able to maintain our beef will be available in Whole Foods Market's 44 California locations from San Luis Obispo to San Diego throughout the summer beginning June 1st. You can also order our 100% grass-fed beef online as part of a partnership with Larder Meat Company. Visit HearstRanch.com. That's H-E-A-R-S-T Ranch.com. Welcome back. We're talking to award-winning author, food writer, and walk expert Grace Young about the plight of Chinese restaurants in America during the pandemic. So, Grace, tell tell us more about the specifically about your video project, Coronavirus Chinatown Stories. What what led you to start this? Right. So, um, I as this was happening in February, I had written a story for Food and Wine magazine about what was happening in Manhattan's Chinatown, and I'd really been monitoring what was going on. And I had this idea that I wanted to go to Chinatown and record interviews with different restaurant and shop owners. And my idea was that if people heard their personal stories, what they were struggling, how their businesses were struggling, that it would motivate people to go to Chinatown. So I'd been thinking about this for about a week or two. And suddenly I got a phone call from Poster House Museum. So Poster House is a relatively new museum. I think they just had their one-year birthday. Mm. And they had just opened an exhibition called The Sleeping Giant, which is vintage Chinese posters and also modern Chinese posters. Um, and all the museums in New York City had closed March, the week of March 10th, 11th, something like that. Mm -hmm. So they called me March 13th. I had never met the director, Julia Knight. And she said, um, we're all at home now. We want to do something to help the Chinese community. Do you have any ideas? So I told her this idea that I had. And she said, you do it and we'll put it on our website. And uh, I said, well, can you give me a videographer? And she said, no. She said, um, can't you shoot it on your iPhone? So... The next day, I put out uh, a request on Instagram asking if there was anyone who could volunteer their services to help me shoot some interviews in Chinatown. And Dan On answered this request. We had never met before. And on March 13th, which uh, March 15th, which was a Sunday, we went to Chinatown together. And our first interview was with Mei Chow, who had a Malaysian French restaurant. And she was very feisty and sure that she was going to continue. Business had been bad since January, but she was going to keep on going. And we did four more interviews. We did three restaurants and a shop. And the other four were really heartbreaking. Two of the restaurants told us that this would be their last day. And mm -hmm. one of them was Hop Key, which has been around since 1968. And the owner, Peter Lee, um, says in this video that his father started the restaurant in 1968 
uh, with his partners. And in the restaurant, which is normally always packed, it can hold 160 people. There were three people dining. The, mm. the waiters were all just sitting around. All of them were very old style. I would want to say they're, they're all middle-aged men. Mm. And we used to have restaurants like this in San Francisco's Chinatown. So there's something very, very sentimental and nostalgic for me walking into Hopki. They wear these very, very elegant cotton kind of gray-blue jackets. And um, Peter Lee brought us into the kitchen, which was pristine, clean, and not a sound from the walk. There was no cooking. So the chefs were sitting around, the prep cooks, the dishwasher. It was uh, Dan and I had never worked with each other before. There were so many times during the interviews that we did that day that we looked at each other and we both had tears welling up in our eyes. It was just so sad. And one of the uh, restaurants that we interviewed, one of the owners said that the next day, 70% of the restaurants were planning on closing. So we suddenly, I mean, we realized as we were shooting these interviews that we were in the middle of a rapidly changing situation that we were actually recording living history and that this was one of the saddest days in Manhattan's Chinatown history. And now when I look back on it, um, that was the last day that Chinatown was Chinatown as we think of it. Because since then, uh, when Chinatown reopened, you know, in that was February, that was March 15th, and the following, that a few hours later, Mayor de Blasio closed all restaurants throughout the city, except you could do takeout. But many restaurants and stores just completely shut down in, in Chinatown. And Chinatown was a ghost town for the next two months. You'd go into Chinatown and I wouldn't see one pedestrian. There was no car traffic. It's always bumper to bumper. You know, it would take you like 15 minutes to drive two blocks, not one car driving down the street. Almost no cars parked. Yeah, that was the last day Chinatown was Chinatown. And when Chinatown reopened, which was at the beginning of June, many stores and restaurants did not reopen. And since then, many important legacy businesses have closed. Uh, So... That day that we were in Chinatown, the timing uh, was so powerful that if we had done the interview, if I had wanted to do the interview one week later, there would have been no one to interview. So if I hadn't been in conversation with Poster House, I'm quite sure I would not have gone down quite that quickly. But because Julia Knight said, do it and we'll put it up on our website. And Dan was amazing. He edited the first video within like 24 hours. And the Poster House, Poster House Museum put the video up within 24 hours. And now there's this beautiful page on the Poster House website that has, um, as we speak right now, there are seven videos on the website. And they're all powerful and they're all extraordinary stories that tell you 
what these poor businesses have been going through. And Grace, have you talked about with Dan or with Poster House or with somebody else about doing a kind of subsequent series, either on the aftermath or hopefully rebirth? Or is that still in the in the back of your mind? Or do you feel like you captured this important moment in time and we'll just have to see what happens? Um, so that day we shot five videos, interviews with four restaurants and one shop. And then I did a little intro just standing on Pell Street. And uh, since then, we have shot two more videos. One, which was, um, there's a wonderful man named Don Lee, who's the chairman of Homecrest Community Services in Bensonhurst in Brooklyn. And so his Homecrest supports the, the Chinese seniors in that area. And he came up with the idea of a stir-fry meals on wheels program to bring hot meals to seniors who were sheltering in place and unable to get food. And without any funding from the city, he just got donations and did this, and he's still doing it. So, um, so that was a really heartwarming, wonderful story to do. And as I mentioned to you, the first interview that we did was with Mei Chow, who had this Malaysian French restaurant. And mm -hmm. after uh, Mayor de Blasio shut down all the restaurants, you know, she had been the one that I said was really feisty and we're not reducing hours, we're not closing. Within one day, she realized she couldn't even do takeout. So mm -hmm. she closed for two months and then her landlord was pressuring her. He wanted his rent. So she opened the restaurant in May and lasted for one month. I've never seen anyone work so hard and couldn't make it. So she closed her restaurant by June and we went back and we interviewed her uh, for the closing. So she has two interviews on the Poster House website, actually a third. We did an iPhone interview when she just reopened in May for that mm -hmm. one month. Um, and that story is really fascinating to see the three stages of what she went through. And mm -hmm. it's a very, very powerful story because the first interview, as I said, she was really, you know, not backing down. And we went to, to interview her five or six days later because we realized what she had said was already outdated because she had closed the restaurant. Mm -hmm. And by the time we interviewed her six days after the first interview, she said, she had a restaurant um, during 9-11. And as horrifying as 9-11 was, she said, uh, th there's no comparison. She reopened after 9-11 within a week, and it was really hard work to get everything going again. But in the interview, she said, I have no idea what's going to happen. This is way beyond what we went through for 9-11. And so given given this situation, how how can people or what 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 can people do to help or how do you think people should think about helping? Thank you for asking that question. The most important thing is to go and support your local Chinese restaurant uh, food market business in any way that you can. Um, as I said, in Manhattan, we've lost 60 mil 67 million tourists. We've lost office workers who would normally be eating and shopping in Chinatown. 
So it's the foot traffic that they need. So go to the restaurants if you're comfortable eating indoors, if you can eat indoors. Um, otherwise, order takeout. Um, it's so important to pay cash because when you pay by credit card, they lose a few percentages, a little percentage of the, um, the um, bill to the credit card company. It's really wonderful to tip generously because the wait staff has lost so much income in the last couple of months. Um, if you can pick up the delivery yourself and not use a delivery app, which takes a huge cut. Mm. And um, I always say to people, offer to your neighbors or your friends that you can pay, pick up takeout for them. And also remind all your friends and, and family to go to Chinatown and support it or whatever your local Chinese restaurant is. Because I think everyone is suffering throughout the country right now. All the businesses are suffering. But I think people haven't really made the connection that if we don't go in there now, when COVID is finally over, Chinatown will not be there. Your favorite restaurant, your favorite shop, it's going to disappear. And, and they're all struggling right now and every little bit helps. So if we can just go in there and, and give them a little rescue, you know, help everyone lift Chinatown up again, that would really make a huge difference. Thanks for sharing that. I think, yeah, I think sadly we're still at the beginning rather than the middle or the end of the implications of all that the pandemic has has wrought. So that is really important. I wanted you to give you the chance to share with everyone what how you're participating in Smithsonian Food History Weekend. Tell us what you're planning to do. Yes. Actually, Todd, can I just add one more thing? A, a no, few different or yeah. a few different organizations that you could donate to if anyone uh, would like to do that. So Homecrest that does this stir-fry meals on wheels, I believe the website is homecrest.org. And uh, there's a wonderful organization in Chinatown called Welcome to Chinatown. And they have a longevity fund that um, you can make a donation and they are giving money to businesses that are struggling in Manhattan's Chinatown. And there is a tea shop in Manhattan called Grand Tea Imports. And I think the website is just that, grantyimports.com. And they just had a fire last week and sustained mm. $60,000 worth of damage. So on top of all that they're struggling with, of months and months of just trying to stay afloat, they have a fire to deal with now. So there is a fund for them too. So, And I'm sure if you look into it, um, your local Chinese um, community probably has different funds that you can contribute to, but I know that that would make an enormous difference if people want to make a contribution to do something like that. Okay, thank you. Um, so um, my participation at the National Museum of American History's uh, Food History uh, Gala is that coronavirus Chinatown stories is going to be shown. And so I'm extremely excited. They're building a special website uh, for this, um, for the gala. And uh, apparently our videos will be in the gallery and you'll be able to see that between October 13th and the 18th. Uh, no, 
October 13th and the 28th. Okay, great. So if you register, as I was saying at the beginning of the podcast at foodhistoryweekend.si.edu, that then gets you access to this website that Grace is referring to, where all the programming for the gala from home and then the Food History Weekend as a whole. And so is that, are you introducing them or they're just kind of uh, showcased there and people can watch them and they're featured? Uh, They're just... uh... We actually did a little uh, intro. We taped a little intro, which I'm going to send to the museum, but I'm not sure if it will make it in time. Um, But otherwise, I think all the videos are there and they're sort of self-explanatory. And the majority of them were shot on March the 15th. Some of the businesses we return to later just to like do a part two, um, but it's all indicated within the video. And And they're very moving. Um, They're very, I I think when people, it it is what I want it to be. When you see and hear these personal stories, it, I think it helps you to understand uh, the struggles of what these poor owners have gone through. And um, I hope it will motivate people to go and support their local Chinese businesses. Well, yeah, no, I think they're a triumph and they're very moving and very powerful. So I definitely think you succeeded. And I'm really glad that they are a welcome addition to Food History Weekend, because as you were saying, you were chronicling uh, food history as it was happening. So after the break, uh, Grace is going to share her Julia moment, and I'm trusting it's an uplifting one. Get in touch, send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, Tweet us at Julia Child JCF and let us know what you think about today's show and share your ideas for future guests. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. Grace, what's your Julia Moment? So when I was growing up in San Francisco, we only ate traditional Cantonese food. And one day I saw Julia on television in her show, The French Chef. And I was completely mesmerized. And every week, I would send a self-addressed envelope to WGBH in Boston and get the recipe. Um, And in fact, when Julia came to San Francisco when I was about 14 or 15, she did a book signing at the White House department store. And I got my father to drive me to the department store. And all the ladies who lunch were standing in line in their like Chanel suits or they were (laughs) all, you know, they were like women of a certain age with gold uh, bracelets and they all had their hardbound copy of Mastering the Art of French Cooking. And I showed up, I didn't know what a book signing was. I showed up with my paperback of the French chef and Julia and Paul both signed it. And my father even took a photograph of me that day, but that photo has gotten lost over the years. Oh, no. Yeah, and then fast forward, and that's the reason I got into cooking. Um, 
I then started studying French cooking when I was uh, 14. There was uh, a local teacher named Josephine Oraldo in San Francisco. And I just was fascinated with cooking. And I actually started exploring French cooking first and didn't really get back to my roots until I was about 30. And that's when I started working on my first cookbook, uh, The Wisdom of the Chinese Kitchen. And as I was writing, as you mentioned earlier, I spent a long time working for Time Life Books. I was the test kitchen director and director of food photography. But when I finally wrote my own book about my family's recipes, um, I kept on thinking about Julia. And I think in the uh, intro to uh, French cooking, she says that she wanted to take the bugaboo out of French cooking. And that's exactly how I felt writing my first book, that I felt as though people were really intimidated by Chinese cooking and, oh, how do I handle a wok? Or, oh, I've never done stir frying before. So I just wanted to make it more approachable. And when The Wisdom of the Chinese Kitchen was published, the um, AIWF, American Institute of Wine and Food, had a special Chinese New Year's banquet, and they invited Julia and me and my parents. And they couldn't decide who Julia would sit next to because all the heads from across the country came from New York, from you know Texas, whatever. So they put Julia between my mother and me. Oh, and wow. as you said... Julia loves Chinese food. <laughs> <laughs> and so my mother, as is the uh, tradition, you always serve the guests next to you. And my mother used to always overdo it, right? And I would sometimes be mortified, like, mama, stop it. You know, like, people can only eat so much. But, but the more mama kept on giving Julia, the more Julia was eating. Julia <laughs> ate everything, <laughs> And at the end of this meal, all of a sudden, I see my father reaching his hand out towards Julia and offering her a toothpick. You know, those little containers that they have on mm -hmm. the Chinese restaurant. And I'm wanting to like scream out, no, Baba, no, don't do it. <laughs> and she takes it. And my mother takes it. And my father, and all of a sudden, I look. And the three of them all are using a toothpick with their hand covering their other hand and they're picking. <laughs> That's so and at, great. And at the end of the dinner, she says, well, Grace, we must stay in touch. And I said, of course, Julia. And she said, well, um, do you have my contact info? And I said, uh, uh, no, Julia. And she reaches into her bag. And I thought, I'm going to get Julia Child's business card. And she brings out her checkbook and she gave me a deposit <laughs> <laughs> and wizard of the chinese kitchen had just been published and she said and i gave a speech that night and i was able to acknowledge her impact on why i was standing there so that was amazing and then she said to me because the book had just been nominated for two awards for icp she said i hope you win and i said i hope so too so that's a great Julia moment, wouldn't it you say? It is, and you do a pretty good Julia as well. I like that. <laughs> but and and what a wonderful thing to have you full circle working with us in the National Museum of American History. And I think these things you're doing between everything from the 
walk therapist satire about not being intimidated by walk cooking and the the Chinatown coronavirus project are all things that I, I think Julia would be delighted that you've done. So thank you so much, Grace. Thank you, Todd. And um, yeah, you've just been terrific today. And you're right. Julia would want us to support Chinatown. So everyone's got to eat Chinese food right now. <laughs> Precisely. Well, thanks for joining us. And thanks everyone for listening. For more, you can go to graceyoung.com or follow her on social. She's at StirFryGrace on Twitter and at StirFryGuru on Instagram. If you want to check out the coronavirus Chinatown stories, you can participate in Food History Weekend, and you can also go to posterhouse.org and click on special projects. For the latest updates on who else is appearing at Smithsonian Food History Weekend and at the October 15 Gala from Home, you can follow us at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. As always, it's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Please give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.